<laughs> We've been what you call AMDG consistent. Yes. Okay, nice. Yes. Which Is that like SOS consistent? Like morning prayers are commitments? No. No. You guys are like real deal. You guys no, we... wore the jumpsuits all four years. <laughs> the jumpsuits are easy. The morning prayer, not so much. <laughs> Think of it as uh, strong suggestions and hopeful <laughs> aspirations. That's what, I, that's what uh, both AMDG and, uh, and Ketchup Boxes is. A general right. a feeling of being screwed by everyone. <laughs> <laughs> We're the underdog. That's... No, you're not. You're the biggest house yeah. on that campus. Shut up, you. <laughs> and everyone always uh, thinks that, like, you know, you're just egotistical, but deep down, you're just like, I just want the people I know around me. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of issues we can probably unpack. There, there in oh, man, this is here. a free therapy session. That's what I'm here for. <laughs> I, I, no, no joke. Like, five minutes before, I was like, what if this just turns into him diagnosing us for <laughs> like, I mean, an, like an hour? Listen, I, I like you guys, and, you know, I have a, a, a strong affinity, especially for FUS. If you guys wanted therapy, free therapy, like there's other ways to go about it. You didn't have to get me on your this show. This is an elaborate ruse. <laughs> I have two therapists, and I'm fine. Uh. Awesome. Oh, it is a beautiful thing. Yeah, so um, how do I – okay, I'm so bad. I'm, I'm, I'm terrible at this in jail, but how do you, I pronounce your last name? Bataro. Bataro. Okay, that's what I yeah. thought, but I didn't want to be wrong. No problem. And then I would have felt so bad. Um, no, do you totally prefer bad. to be called Dr. Greg, Dr. Bataro, Greg? Usually Dr. Greg is, Dr. is the Greg. normal course okay. of – but cool. whatever. Okay. Call me whatever. Yeah, it says Dr. Greg there, so them's the rules. Yeah, call me call, – you know, if, if, if shit had, you know, slips through, that's, that's probably fine. Oh, fair enough. Fair yeah. enough. It's totally up to you and your audience. <laughs> I mean, you're the one that wore the jumpsuit. That wasn't our – we didn't tell you to do that. So, no. <laughs> everyone, Gomer here. Welcome, nerds, to Catching Foxes. Today we interview Dr. Greg Botaro. He is a Catholic psychologist, the director of the Catholic Psych Institute, and the Catholic Psych Academy. He developed the Catholic Mindfulness Online course, and here's, this is cool, before getting his doctorate, he spent four years living as a Franciscan friar, serving the poor in the tradition of St. Francis. I didn't even know that, and we never even talk about that. And now that I'm recording this bio, I deeply regret that. But we get into a lot of amazing things. We end up, uh, started trying to record an hour-long episode, start to finish, and we push past two and a half hours. So we're going to release this into two parts. The first part leads us through what is wrong with modern therapy and modern systems, and how someone like St. Thomas Aquinas and Pope John Paul the Great can actually help address major issues within the practice of modern psychology. That is part one, and it ends with talking about internal family systems, comparing it to certain things with JP2. And we leave off there. The next episode will pick up right where that left off for next week, because I think the content that we talk about is just that good. So we're going to divide this into two parts, give you time to ruminate over what he talks about. Uh, I know you're going to enjoy this episode, because basically it turns into us asking him, what's wrong with us? And uh, he nails it. He nails it. This is for entertainment purposes only. Please, if you need mental health, you have to go to a qualified expert person and don't use an episode of Catching Foxes to diagnose or treat your own mental or emotional illnesses. For the love of God, please don't do that. Don't, don't, don't you dare do that. And now, Dr. Greg Pataro. Yeah, but your setup, you look, your, your setup is swanky. Now, is that – I'm looking behind your head. Yeah. That looks like a bookcase door. Is yes, that a bookcase? it's a secret office behind my office. <laughs> Where'd he go? I am so jelly. Can I yeah. tell you how many YouTube videos I've watched to try to figure out how to oh, do yeah, that? I'll, I'll close it for you. Yes. Ooh. There it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. We we bought this house. It was like a foreclosure. It had been abandoned for like a year. It's like the Adams family house. And then we walk in. I found this office. The, the, that thing was on its side, in the doorway, coming in and out. He's like, "We must save this. Oh if nothing else in this if house works. Else. This will work. This is where they hid the booze." Yeah, <laughs> exactly. I just think like, oh my gosh, how many people were murdered in there? Just yeah. how many? <laughs> oh, well, thanks. we got a thanks chimney in here to burn the bodies. Yeah. Oh, gosh. So Only... convenient. Because <laughs> are you in um, New York City? We're in Connecticut. Okay. Why, I don't know why I thought you were in um, New York City. We, I, I started in New York when I first got married, and then, uh, and then uh, my, my first practice that I started was in Manhattan. So we were right in the city. 
Okay. And then we got pregnant right away as as some Catholics choose to. It happens. <laughs> as close one their does. Eyes and jump. It happens. <laughs> Yeah. So we moved out of our 600-square-foot studio apartment and uh, and found a bigger place. So it was a quick stint in the city, but it was fun. Nice. Now, we um, before we get into all of the heavy stuff, there's, like, so many things that I wanted to ask you about, including we had a, we had a list of things that I definitely have pulled up in front of me right now. <laughs> um, I have a bunch of stuff, too, that I really want to go through. Me and Luke have not prepared in any way, shape, or form. I, well, we we're, get... we're, I figured we're already in it, right? I mean, this oh, is yeah. the show. This is yeah. show. <laughs> so we, have a, now, um, show. <laughs> we haven't done this in a long time, and I'm not saying that we do this oh, now, but just for everyone who is listening, there's a little thing on, we do that my friend named Bradley Barnes began when, he, when I did a ministry on the Archdiocese of Cincinnati. There's a lot of people there who um, went to Franciscan. Uh, Barnes did not. So we created a thing called a drinking game. Okay. Where anytime a household or something like that was was mentioned, yeah. people would have to drink. And then we started – I talked about it on the show one time and it became a thing where anytime Steubenville or, or more specifically like households or stuff like that was talked about, you you had to drink. Now, I'm not advocating that people should do that while they are, while they are listening to this, to this podcast. I'm just going to say Don't. there could be the chance that <laughs> – um, that a lot of Steubenville stuff comes up so we can either get it out now, get it out at the end, <laughs> or just let it see on where it falls. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm happy to go either way. We, we, can, we can see where the, where the wind takes us. It's awesome. I was, um, I'm, I'm in a Franciscan kind of mood because I just talked to Brian Kissinger for about an hour. Oh, that's uh, awesome! Course, so. I, I really, I am, I, you know, I, I have been in a while, in that mood for a while too. I've, we, we actually just went out there uh, about a month ago, two months ago, nice. and um, I took the family. We just road tripped out yep. to Steubenville. It was awesome. My wife had never been, and then I was like, we just got the Sprinter because we had our seventh, <laughs> so we crossed the threshold. The minivan doesn't work <laughs> now anymore. Yeah. So I was like, how can we really sort of break this thing in? Get the scratches on it. Get the dents. Make it messy. <laughs> so like, let's let's go out to Steubenville. So we did. It was awesome. <laughs> it was so good to see everybody and, oh, and hang out there. So yeah, wherever you guys want to go with it. I got to do that with my fam- uh, family this summer. I hadn't been in five years, six years, and uh, I do the youth conferences, right? So oh, nice. sometimes I do main campus, but that was like way in the beginning, and they, I guess they just didn't want me back there. And uh, <laughs> so I go. They, I had main campus last year, and I was so excited because it was St. Louis one weekend, and then the next weekend was main uh main campus and so my wife's family's from st louis so we did road trip to st louis i did the conference while they hung out with family then like two days later road trip at the steubenville so uh yeah it was it was awesome and they saw the mothership and we did all the things and i i spent four i spent a quarter of my paycheck in books at the bookstore and t-shirts and all that dangerous is, no. It's so dangerous. That's it's what everyone so thinks we are when you say that. Everyone thinks that every student person, which is true, just spends a lot of money at the bookstore, which is true your freshman year, not because of like, I mean, because of the, you know, the uh, books that you need for school, but also because it's like you're on that like, Steubenville, I need to yes. learn things. Yeah. And then um, if you're like me, like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> <laughs> not me. Not me at all. I would be the guy that camped out on the day you tried to sell your books back to the store, and I would take the free books that were rejected in a box off to the side. That's I'd awesome. be like, whoa, I got a modern labor economics textbook. So I got problems. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a little bit of a mix of both. I, I go and buy all the books, and then I don't read them. So I'm just like, if I buy the book, it counts for yeah, something. It's it does. like I'm kind of smart because yeah. I, I have these books. That's that line from Michael Scott in the office. Read it. I own it. Yeah. You're like, wait, wait. <laughs> so, Doctor Greg, Doctor Greg, can I ask you one question? Can I do the opening question, Luke? Yep. Go it's for a it. very narrow and specific question. Okay. What's wrong with modern psychology? <laughs> What's wrong with therapy today? What's the problem? What is it? Cath- uh, the Catholic Psych Institute is there to solve. <laughs> You want, so you want to jump in and get real serious? Or did I, do. You want, like, I do. I do. Not so, enough booze. No. You're no. so proud of yourself, aren't you, Gomer? I am. I am. Mostly because I gave up alcohol for this month, and I want to divert the conversation as soon as possible. Because Is that like an Exodus 90 thing? or? Uh, no, no. It's a Michael Gormley is wildly out of control and needs to lose weight thing. Okay. So <laughs> I was like, my, this is a true story, true story. Today, my pastor, I sit down yesterday. And he looks at me and he goes, oh, Mr. Gormley, you're doing something different? And I'm like, uh, what? 
And he goes, your face, it doesn't look as big. <laughs> I was like, oh, uh, as a matter of fact, yes, I, I'm trying to be more humble. And so maybe my head isn't as swole as it used to be. I was just like, gosh, that's a, that's a rough compliment. <laughs> that's a wow, rough not compliment. as big. That could, yeah. Yeah, that's rough in every, every direction. Then he put his hand on my belly and he's like, what do the twins do? And I just started crying. <laughs> okay, he didn't say that. He didn't say that at all. So, but I, I'm so fascinated with this because, okay, so your name in my circles of evangelization, discipleship, get bantied about as, as then people go to war over whether or not mindfulness is allowed to even remotely Uh-oh. be Catholic and all that <laughs> stuff. But I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about therapy. I want to yeah. talk about your approach, why we need, uh, like, I love your explicitly Catholic therapy. So, but, but the problem is so many people... So one person in particular whom I love deeply, I, I got to look at the camera here, the person that I love deeply was told for a year of counseling for severe depression, anxiety, like all sorts of stuff, you're just a woman. That's why you're depressed and anxious. You're a woman Oof. in a man's body. Over and over and over again until he believed it, oh. right? And, and I thought that that was like, whoa, you got to get a new therapist. It's an extreme, like crazy. And he's like, so we did. And there's a lot of healing now finally starting to happen, but. Like, this is not a rare occurrence, and it's killing my soul. No, it's abuse. It's total abuse. And look, I mean, here's the thing. Like, people are naively growing up in in, and drinking in the Kool-Aid of a culture that is totally dualistic, which which means we've lost touch with our true humanity, who we really are, and this connection between body and spirit. The fact that we have a spirit, the fact that the spiritual life— and I don't even mean just, like— reading the lives of the saints. I mean, and I don't mean praying your rosary. What I mean is a sense that there's something beyond what is physically uh, observable and that there's, there are things like objective truth mm-hmm. and transcendent truth, goodness, and beauty, and, and these things that are beyond. And, but it's not just that it's out there. It's actually in us that were created as this combination of both the things that are the body, which science can study, and all these other principles and all these other parts of us in our spiritual nature. So, you know, we grow up in that, and good, well-intentioned people, and, and you know, we want to help people, so it's like, all right, what am I going to do to help people? I was, like, pre-med for a little while. I was like, maybe I'll be a doctor, a, a physician. Maybe I'll go, and then I was... Boring, am I right? Yeah, I don't know. What, uh. what am I going to do with medicine? <laughs> but but I, I was naturally more philosophical. I started thinking about the person philosophically and then and then you know really through my own conversion saw that like what the world is missing is an understanding of being human and that's where i could actually do some good but so what happens is like all these other people everybody all of us are in the same boat and some of us want to go and become psychologists so what do you do well what what does that take you you need a license you need a degree you find the program da 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 but the whole system is completely grounded on this broken Cartesian dualistic split idea. So if you're talking about medicine, if you're talking about you want to go be a heart surgeon, okay, great. Like you have to know the heart, how the heart operates. And for the most part, and this could be argued also, but for the most part, like it's a physical thing. And if you learn the physical thing about it, you can learn how it's made, how it works, how it breaks, and how to fix it. So you don't really have to get too deep into philosophy. But when you're talking about a whole person, it's, you can't just look at the, the science of the physical, the material world, of what's happening in the brain, what's happening in the hormones, what's happening with these outcome studies and this research and all stuff. So that's where the philosophy enters in. But the problem is that none of the field has integrated at all any philosophy. So it's it's all a sham. This is actually a whole illusion, and it's this horrifying and now taken to its extreme abusive sham. Mm-hmm. It's just proposing to do a thing that it can't do. It's like, oh, yeah, I, I'm gonna, my car broke down. I'm going to take it to the car me- mechanic. Oh, yeah, what kind of tools does he have? Oh, yeah, he doesn't use tools. He doesn't need tools. He 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 does a, a you know he waves his hands over the car, and he says some chants, and that's supposed to but like that's the opposite problem. He's denying the material, mm-hmm. but you're it's basically what's happening in psychology. They're denying the spiritual, 
they don't have tools to actually fix the thing that you're saying is broken and needs help. Mm-hmm. So when you say like what's missing and what are we doing here, I mean, everything is missing in terms of any kind of grounding or foundation in what is the object of our treatment. What are we actually helping? Who are we actually helping here? And so can we, can we sort of do the best we can with that? Yes. The programs out there, like there's really good intentioned people. There's great faithful Catholic programs that are doing this stuff, but they're working with a foundation that is totally inherently flawed from the start. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to meet objectives. They're meeting criteria and standards that are completely ungrounded in anything that's truly human. So it, the, the system is totally flawed. And the best therapists out there who are working with that are good because they're doing stuff on their own. That's not actually what they were taught how to do. So there's a, there's a number of directions of, yeah. of sort of, illusion that's happening here yeah so you think are they prioritizing so psychology for people who don't know we, we contrast ancient with modern psychology because psychology means the study of the soul right and so or the study of the mind but the the problem so that you're articulating is that they don't even because they're trying to get philosophical or because this whole philosophical and theological component of man is being unaddressed they're not, they're not actually treating the real problem or they're just not even able to diagnose it correctly? Or what, what do you think? Well, both. They're not, yeah. they're not you know, they're, they're treating symptoms and, and they're looking at certain symptoms that are observable and they're sh- shooting in the dark and, and trying different approaches to try to reduce symptoms. And, you know, and there's competing theories and competing uh, methodologies and and but everybody's sort of just taking shots in the dark without a real game plan. Like this is something I've been saying lately now, our new mission, the, as we've sort of revised the mission of the Catholic Psych Institute, we're we're creating a standard for mental health. And and when I first proposed this mission at a strategy meeting, I was like, I think we need to I think we need to renew the standard of mental health. And then I was starting to play with that more. I was like, wait a minute. What is the standard of mental? There is no standard of mental health. There's nothing to renew. We actually need to create one from scratch. Like if you go to a cardiologist, there's standards. There's like, a, there's, you can look it up. It's like, what's a normal heart rate? What's a normal blood temperature? What's a normal acid level in your blood? What's a normal whatever? Normal. It's a standardized thing that you measure what you're observing against. There is literally no standard for things that are in the world of mental health. It's, yeah, they, it's like it's this total sham. Yeah, there's I, – oh, uh, I remember when I was in my bioethics class, they were talking about how most, um, most people cannot agree on a definition of health. Right. <laughs> like, what is health? And it's like, you mean my doctors don't know what health is? <laughs> like, some sort of homeostasis where you're not dying right now and you're not in chronic pain. But even if you are in chronic pain, you know, and you're like, well, what is health? And in psychology, it's 10 times worse. It's 10 times worse because at least in, like, in the physical health sciences, you can say, like, all right, well, we know, like, what's a normal range for the heart? What's a normal range for yeah, body yeah. temperature? Right? So it's like 98.6 is normal. Then if you have 101 fever, like... You have some immune system activity. If you have 106 fever, like, you're in danger. You should be in the hospital. Mm -hmm. Your brain is cooking. Yeah. So, like, at that point, it's like those are the standards that are laid out, and it's very clear. And you have a thermometer, and it takes your temperature, and you can know what the reading Mm -hmm. is telling you, and you have a range of what is, quote, unquote, healthy. When you get into abstract philosophical, like, sort of health of science and all that stuff, of course, it's, it's all over the place. But just even just practically speaking. You know, so that's when we get into the situation now where nobody knows if they need a therapist, what kind of therapy they should do. Is this depression? Is this sadness? Is this desolation? Is it spiritual? Is it emotional, psychological? Is it chemical? Is it related to a physical ailment? Is it related to uh, my, my parents hate me? Is it related to, you know, it's like literally all over the place. We have nowhere to go with this. So then how do you start then? Like, like, like what with your practice, I don't know if that's the right way to determine or not, but like, where do you like, so you say if, if, if you're going to create a new, like, you know, like model, like what, like, where do you even begin? Yeah, no, it's a, that's a great question. I mean, and this is like now probably about a five year process where, 
about five years ago, I hit a hard wall and I just got super frustrated and I had my own sort of little desolation and I took a step back and kind of a little sabbatical and I was like, what am I doing with my life? Because I'm doing what I'm taught how to do as a clinical psychologist really well, but it's not enough. And I'm like, you know, bringing in with my own spiritual formation, my heart, my love that I have for the people that I'm working with, my patients. And I'm like, I feel like there could be more, should be more than I'm able to do. And within reason, right? It's not like the savior complex where I feel like I have to heal everybody. But there was something about the model that I was taught and the standard sort of practice that's acceptable that I could feel implicitly was creating a limitation on what I could actually do for people. And so that's when I took a step back and I was like, if, if I just erased everything I had been told about the way it was always done, quote unquote, what would I imagine is like, all right, if Christ was like leading me here instead of the APA, how to actually help people and knowing full well, the importance of science and studies and research and bringing those things in and looking and using those things. But at the same time, like what is the whole fundamental disposition and methodology that I could engage with people on, what would that look like? And so then I started building that up from scratch. And then I started uh, training our team. I had like 12 therapists at that point. And after a short time of doing it myself, about a year experimenting with a new methodology, then I, it was mind-blowing how effective it was. I was like, all right, I can't keep this to myself. I actually did it. I was kind of like secretively doing it myself my team gets really upset when I start like coming up with new ideas, like basically every week. I'm like, all right, guys, listen, I just found Slack. We got to use this new communication tool. They're like, oh, we just got off Trello. Like, what, do you, what else are you? So I do things now myself secretly without telling anybody. Nice. But after a year and then seeing these results, I was like, all right, I have to tell some people and I have to like bring these people into it. So I started training them on what I was doing and I realized that I could articulate the deeper foundations of what made this whole thing work. And then we did that for a couple of years and they had the same kinds of mind blowing results with the people that they were working with. So then the next step for us was to really manualize and articulate our training. So we just launched last October, a whole certification program. And so now we have almost the equivalent of a master's and I hope someday it kind of develops into a kind of master's. And what we've done is this is kind of a long answer to get to the root of what, what you're kind of asking, but we just stripped away all the nonsense of psychology and kept some core elements of the most relevant psychological insights that I've learned and, and we've used. And then I've integrated it with the most important dimensions of anthropology, the philosophy of the human person that comes from our faith, specifically through the lens of John Paul II. And then the traditional spirituality that fits, that makes, that matters. So we're not getting into demonology and, you know, mystical theology and, uh, you know, but we're talking about like, what is it about the spiritual journey that informs us about the human person? And what is it about the philosophy of the human person that tells us about the person specifically as it relates to the normal human experience. And then what is, what is helpful from psychology? By bringing these three threads together, we've, we've created this program that is, is uh, part of it is, is academic curriculum, so there's lectures and learning, but also the other half of it is accompaniment, is personal uh, mentorship and journeying together through the program. So it's actually like a whole different kind of schooling experience. Because even that has been rewritten by really sort of going back, like starting from scratch and rebuilding a program itself. It's not just you sit in a classroom. It's like, no, you have, and it's an old model. It's not like we, we invented it, but you have a master mentor and then you're, you have an apprentice. And that apprentice is learning the book, learning stuff, but then they're also walking with somebody on a daily basis and, and like talking it out and having a human experience, an encounter of actual relationship and really working through all the different things that you're learning. So this is what we implemented like internally and it worked. And so now we're, we're, we're developing it into this thing that, that we can invite others into externally. Nice. So when you talk about your 
um, your new approach and the effects that it's having. Can you give us some examples of that? Like where, you know, kind of like obviously anonymous case study type thing. Yeah. Where... So, I mean, the really cool thing about this in terms of research, and this are anecdotal and this is qualitative research. It's not quantitative research. So there's a difference there. But one of the things that I, that I realized was because what I did, I had a certain caseload when I first took this little sabbatical, let's say it was 15 clients that I had at the time, patients at the time in my practice. And I explained to them what I was doing. And I invited them to participate in this next step of my own professional development. And I wanted to create a kind of an experiment. And, you know, and I, and I couched it with the right proper sort of uh, safety. You know, I, I made sure that they all knew we would go back to the old model or I would give them referrals and I would take care of them. And, you know, it wasn't like totally rogue and like, you know, it wasn't anything that was inappropriate, but, yeah. you know, I was basically saying, here's a new approach and, you know, I'm going to really, you know, when you, when you agree to participate in a kind of experiment like that, you get more attention than most other people would in other, in other formats. So out of those 15, I had one of, one of those people were kind of wrapping up anyways, but the other 14 decided they wanted to do this new thing with me. And so I had 14 case studies of people who, if you, if you know about research, you have different variables. And then you, 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 it's best if you have a control group. I didn't have a control group, so that's why it's not like an, a totally proper study. But the interesting thing about it was the only variable was the modality. In other words, they were the same patients with the same provider. So, you know, you can't count my personal variable of how I approached doing this thing. Cause I was doing the old thing and I think I was doing a pretty good job. I was certainly doing the best that I could with all my integrity and my training. And, and then I did a new thing. And so what I was comparing was the experience from the old thing with the new thing. And when I say mind blowing results, I had a few of those people that I had worked with for years and I could look back over notes and see mark certain markers of progress. And there were some people that I could see that I made more progress in three months in my new model than I had made in three years with somebody oh, wow. previously. And there were some people that I know, like when they first came to me, it's like, all right, this is going to take probably three to six months to really dig in and understand what's going on. And maybe then another three to six months to, to really move some needles and, and really get to work here. Because, I mean, even in my old practice, I was not just interested in symptom reduction. You know, it was like, I really want to help people have better lives. So maybe somebody comes to me because they can't sleep or they're going through a divorce or maybe they're, they have some anxiety or they have, they're depressed or whatever. Like, okay, well, there's going to be a lot more stuff that you unpack. And it's not just like getting a, a mark of more hours sleeping we want to like really take the chance, to, the opportunity to to make your life better. So you know we do we, we don't do a short term models three months six months maybe a year maybe two three years maybe five years. But I could see immediately in the new model I could figure out what's going on with somebody in about two weeks instead of th three months. And then it could be another month or two to really do as much to move the needle for somebody that it used to take three to six months for. Wow. So what, what about the new model that was, did you feel directly was, was contributing to that? Well, directly and most practically, it's accompaniment on a daily basis. Oh, okay. It's getting in with somebody in their life. It's actually getting into somebody's life, like really being interested, really being. And I'm not saying that I wasn't interested before that, but right. I was practically interested for 45 minutes at a time when I was seeing that person. Hmm. And it, it's not right for me to be thinking about one patient when I'm with another patient. Like, I have other 45-minute blocks of time that are blocked off because yeah. I'm, I'm not seeing the other patient. So I don't know. Every time I'm with Luke, I'm thinking of other podcasters. Well, <laughs> I, hope you, I hope you're not paying him too much. He's not oh, paying him too much. <laughs> Luke handles all the money. <laughs> I better shut up. <laughs> so, but that, that's practically what it is. It's like, yeah. why are we limited, first of all, to 45 minutes once a week? Like, yeah. that doesn't make any sense. Second of all, I'm making patients come to me when it's convenient for me, and you have to put your life on hold at, according to my schedule. 
And that just doesn't make any sense. Like, that's not how Christ encounters us. That's not how somebody attempting to facilitate God's grace is really going to enter into somebody else's life. Now, again, I, I did it before, and I think it was good work. And I know there's a lot of good people out there doing that work. And in whatever way possible, they're bringing God's grace into those 45 minutes once a week. And of course, we pray for our patients outside of that time, and and God's grace is bigger than our time and our schedule anyway. But what can I do differently? That's what I was really looking at. And could I figure out a way to work with my clients on a daily basis, in a daily kind of way that I'm actually involved in their life where they are instead of making them come to me instead of this way that I had been trained to do. So you like, you're there. It's eight o'clock in the morning. You're cooking them eggs and bacon. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's basically, I I move in, you know, I've got a, I've got a couple of needs that I have to make sure they take care of, you know, my, my pillows have to be fluffed to a certain temperature and no, but I actually, I honestly, when I first took that step back, I was like, all right, what could I do if I was, if I was going to give one person everything? Yeah. And that was like one of my first thought experiments is like, all right, what would I do? I would move in with them and I would just be with them all day. Like, I'm going to just follow you around and I'm here with you. Like, we're in it together. Would that be better than what I'm doing now? A lot of people probably wouldn't like that very much and get annoyed with me pretty quickly. But <laughs> Hey, Gormley, are you sure you want to eat that? Are you sure you want to? <laughs> yes, go away. <laughs> but that, but that, that kind of just developed eventually thinking more practically and, yeah. and then using technology and figuring out, like, what do we actually have accessible to us now with our tools mm-hmm. and how can we make this human experience more approachable and accessible? Mm. So yeah. TikTok. so how do you um when you talked before about how it it is rooted in like an anthropological understanding of of who we are of man i'm not good with these terms and it's late um but uh like could you get a little bit more specific i mean i was i was actually kind of intrigued by you said like really uh, really um how it is um, rooted in uh pope saint um john paul ii yeah uh like could you just unpack that a little bit more? Like, like what does that practically look like? Yeah, I mean, this is this gets pretty deep. I don't know. I don't know how far and wide you want to go with this, or how deep <laughs> you want to go with this. But it's, you know, John Paul to, to to you know to this great uh, disappointment in my heart and mind right now. I'm trying to do everything I can to fix this problem, but people don't actually know the brilliance and genius of John Paul II. Like, people that are in the JP2 generation that grew up with him as a pope love him. Great. And, and he's a mystic and a saint and a lovable person. So it's, it's great to love John Paul II. People who know the theology of the body know how brilliant that particular formulation is, especially when it comes to chastity and sexuality. It's only scratching the surface. The theology of the body was a manifestation. It's one fruit of how deeply he understood the person. And his understanding of the human person is, is far and wide the most brilliant articulation that has ever been written. Like more than any psychologist, more than any theorist from the past. And it's the fruit of a culmination of the theorists of the past. So, you know, and a lot of times if, if there's like any like Catholic nerds listening or if you guys get into like you know, Thomistic stuff, and then... Go on. In... <laughs> I'll go people as far as Balthasar allows me. <laughs> but there you go. But it, it's like a false dichotomy that people think it's like, well, you know, I'm, I'm really more Thomistic. Yeah. Or, you know... But John Paul II was Thomistic. He, he stood on the shoulders of the greats of the past, but then he brought our church and our to the world where we are today as any good pope should be doing is a, a being a vicar of Christ in the world today for the contemporary man so he approached contemporary philosophy and he brought in phenomenology he took the good from phenomenology he integrated it with the good of a Thomistic metaphysics and and then he made it better and he brought it into the 20th century and pointed us to the 21st so he he actually wrote out the blueprint of what it is to be human in contemporary terms better than any psychologist has ever imagined possible. Like John Paul II has an understanding of the subconscious, of the, of the, of the way that memory works within us, the way that trauma impacts us from the body 
all the way up through the psyche and the emotions to our spirit. He has an understanding of the way that an encounter with objective truth actually changes our genes, our neurology. He, like, he knew all of this stuff, and he wrote it all out, and he has this understanding of everything about what it is to be human. So by understanding the person through that lens, with, grounded on that kind of truth, we can make sense of everything. There's nothing outside the purview of human experience that can't be understood through John Paul II's lens, including up till today with all the gender confusion and all this other stuff that's going on. Like, it all makes sense. So, so our model, by being grounded on that theoretically and, and philosophically, is one thing. But then the manifestation of our methodology was sort of a natural conclusion of like, okay, so if this is the person, how can we best help a person? And so we need to have these encounters on a daily basis. And then we have a, diff- a very specific approach that, that is a way that we listen, a way that we enter into the relationship, a way that we understand ourself. So here's another part of it. Self-conversion, self-transformation, professional development, quote-unquote, is, is essential to any work that we're doing with our client. It's like not just a nice idea. It's, it's a, an absolute requirement. We have like five hours a week that I'm paying our people for where they're only working on themselves. I still am in supervision working on myself. So because if we're, we can't give what we don't have, and if we're going to try to help other people, we're, we're saying that we're going to be a channel of God's grace. We're facilitating this work. It means we have to receive it first before we can possibly give it. So again, I don't know how much, how deep you want to go with all this, but there's a number of ways in which those kinds of, of things about the person affect the model and the way that we approach what we do. Well, um, if you're okay with this, I'm not saying that we need to analyze me, but <laughs> I am going to like interject on myself into this a bit. Like one of the things that I'm really interested in is, so I, I, uh, uh, I mean, everyone who has listened to, to the podcast is aware of this on an inconsistent basis. But uh, about two years ago, I was diagnosed with um, ADHD, uh, with uh, inattentive ADHD or ADHD inattentive, which is, which is basically ADD. So there was like kind of this sort of um, like, oh, this makes a lot of things in my life now make sense type of a moment. And then there was also a what in the world do I do now? Yeah. And so like one, and particularly as it related to the disciplines of the spiritual life, it made sense why certain things for me were just like really difficult yeah. or I was never quite able. So how would, if you're coming from that point of point of view, like how, like, because it, it was like, like there were so many times that I felt like there was something wrong with me. Yeah. As in like it was I was either lazy or dumb or just like all of these things. And then all of a sudden you you kind of find out that you have this that you have like a neurological condition that actually means you can't do things a certain way that you may have been told, particularly as it relates to some to some like spiritual practices. Like I'm um, using John Paul II's um, lens like um, with that, how would like a person, and, and if and if you don't feel like you're qualified to answer this, this is totally fine. I'm just trying to like, how do you try to navigate a thing like that? Where it's like, well, here's this thing I have. I'm being told that I need to pray the rosary every day, but if I do that, I'll, like I'll get to a point where this is the last thing on earth I want to do, or I'll do it for two days and then I'll stop, and then I'll because you know ADHD, and I'll never go back to it. Am I a terrible sinner? Yeah, definitely. There's no question. Boom. Yeah, sorry. boom. It's very easy, so, straightforward. Yeah. It's a straight shooter. That's why I like it, Doc. Diagnostic. <laughs> no, you know what I mean. Yeah, like, that's, like that's what I mean. But like, I think why I'm so yeah. why why I'm so happy to have this conversation with you is I think this is what a lot of people are dealing with as there are, you know, um, like how do you handle some of this stuff in the spiritual life and like how do you, like I'm, I'm so I'm fascinated by like. Um, like trying to find your roots, like who you. I, I, I'm probably starting to. I'm very tired, so I hope this makes a. Does any of this make sense at all? This makes perfect sense. Okay, yeah, I'd love right. to talk about it's this. the most Luke Carey thing ever. Does this make sense? I don't know. Yeah. But you know, so like, how do you like, like, where would you even begin with the thing like like that? Where it's like, hey, I've got this thing well, now listen, that I realized. I, yeah, I think first of all, disclaimer. Obviously, 
I'm not diagnosing anything. I'm not anybody's uh, therapist here, and and this is not a therapeutic, psychotherapeutic intervention. So (laughs) we can talk about these things in real generalities, but I could say, like, with the kinds of things that you're talking about, if somebody is experiencing some of these things, um, some of the things that I might think about. (laughs) Some things very generally. Yeah, this is all very general. but He is is not diagnosing yeah for entertainment purposes only this is exactly 20 years ago you did this and i would say that means that (laughs) yeah consult but consult your 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 healthcare professional anyway um no but i so there's a number of different layers here to what we would look at first of all uh, what john paul ii would say is that there are layers that are all connected within the person so we have what he calls and he uses the really sort of inaccessible philosophical jargon that drives every theology student crazy who tries to read his stuff. But he calls the lowest level of what's happening within the person on a on a physiological material level. He calls it the the somatovegetative part of the person. And then he, the next layer up is the psychoemotive part of the person. And the things that are operating somatovegetatively are happening outside of our realm of conscious awareness. And that includes neurologically. It includes hormones that are being fired off. It includes even our heart rate and our, you know, all dilation of blood vessels, all those kinds of things, um, digestion, things like that. And then it connects to and relates to and affects and is affected by psychoemotive functioning, which then is a little bit more uh, in touch with what we're aware of. So you know how you feel. How you feel can affect your digestion. It can fe- affect your heart rate. It can affect your neurological functioning. That is then the next interface to our consciousness, which is a whole layer that gets more into what we're aware of. And within that, we also have the subconscious, which is below a threshold of awareness, but it's things that can become conscious and we do become aware of. And then uh, the highest is our sort of spiritual nature where we have freedom and choice and self-determination, and this is how we are truly human. So number one, he's got a whole blueprint laid out that makes sense of something like ADD. Like there are neurological functions, executive functioning is affected by what's happening in your brain and memory and and focus and all these things. Okay. Now, Again, not any particular personal diagnosis here, but what I what I would want to look at if I'm really walking with somebody and working with somebody is that where medical science stops and is like, okay, ADD, no problem, diagnosis, here's your Adderall, here's a Ritalin, whatever, like we're that's all we need. That's not enough. That's a that's a surface level solution that is a symptom reduction for a short term, and sometimes we need to do that. Because we could be so distressed or disoriented by these symptoms that we don't have a chance to enter into the process of, of growth. But it's not enough to stop there. And so what we understand also is that there are things happening inside of us personally and psychologically that are far beyond what we imagine possible. And there's an interesting secular and actually very agnostic, atheistic model now that is really, uh, I think, closer to the truth than than what we've had in a long time in terms of a, a psychological sense of self. And this is a system called internal family systems. Mm-hmm. Yep. So internal family systems is super interesting, and people should definitely look up more about it. The guy who started it is an atheist Jew who's just like, in, in a lot of ways, anti-Catholic, um, if not anti-Christian, but of course he finds ways to be friendly to a lot of the sort of watered down Christianity that's out there. But if it comes down to like an objective moral system that, that sort of rejects moral relativity, then he sees that as the problem. So oh, yeah. just yeah. a word of warning to anybody who does go look up some of this stuff <laughs> and he's super liberal and progressive and, and it just gets really wonky. But yeah. here's the insight that he had is that we have that emerge from us. And this fits perfectly with John Paul II's anthropology. We have different experiences that create responses throughout our life. And as we grow up, we accumulate those experiences and we accumulate those reactions and, and, and responses to experiences. And so instead, like we have this sense, and this comes from psychology too, from a hundred years of bad psychology, that we sort of are this one person 
and we have this solitary experience and then and we are an introvert or we are an extrovert or we are creative or we are super analytical or and and we have one way and then we grow so maybe when i was younger i was creative and now i'm older and i've changed and i've grown and now i'm more analytic and i've whatever okay well that's not ifs internal family systems it's also not jp2 what jp2 says is that we grow and it's like adding rings to a tree stump like if you cut open a tree and you can count the years by the rings that it's been alive we're kind of the same way and so your six-year-old self is still in you your seven-year-old self your eight-year-old self it's not like you turned eight and then you like left seven behind so in our whole life, we have all these different experiences and they create responses. Now, some of those responses are really self-protective because we've gone through some like lowercase t traumatic events where they're really scary, really disorienting, and they go against an inner drive towards goodness and truth and beauty and unity that we're created with. Again, that's more Catholic anthropology. So we have this inner compass that moves us towards our final destiny as in perfection. And then we have experiences that contradict where our inner compass is trying to take us. And what we do, like a ship that's getting thrown off course, is like we build new stuff on to try to get ourselves back on course. So our defense mechanisms are created along the way to try to like bring together some semblance of being back into some place of goodness. Now, interestingly, what they found with this IFS research is that some of those parts that emerge over time in self-protective capacities have the, have the ability to do all sorts of things that we write off as medical or physical, including distraction, for instance. I, I went through some of this training myself, and I have, I have uh, a history of some low back pain. And I thought it actually, actually, this is not, I'm not making this up. <laughs> One afternoon. Dramatic pause. On a, on, a, on a sunny spring day on the hill. Oh, what did we do? <laughs> a truck started driving around. Oh no! With a liner oh, no. in the bed, with a oh, with filled with, with water. water. Oh no! Oh, what no. did we do? Oh, with gosh. JD Chisholm. <laughs> oh no! Standing in the back, yeah, and I some remember. other some other men, nameless as they will remain, <laughs> singing. We have put on Christ, in and Him, him have we have been baptized. baptized. Yeah, yeah, I remember. Driving around campus, plucking people out of their innocent studies in the beautiful grass, and dunking them in the back of oh. said truck. Did we hurt your back? <laughs> Until, at one point, somebody picked on an SOS brother, and then all of a sudden, all these Please say it was Jared! Please say it was Jared! Like, no, like, no. like gophers all around the hill, and it became a brawl of all oh. brawls. Oh, no. <laughs> and oh, at one no. point, J.D. actually had me above his head. <laughs> As pressed. J.D. does, yes. And Oscar yeah. Rivera mm-hmm. started charging at him like a bull, as he does, uh-huh. Bless and, and shouldered J.D. so hard that I went tumbling out of his hands and dropped to the ground like a sack of potatoes. Oh, <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> now, it may have been that or a night in a CZ jumping off a wall when I shouldn't have been there. <laughs> At some point, <laughs> some who's college. To of, yeah. who's, who's, who's to say? Who's to say? Who but at some tell? point, <laughs> I I thought I had done something to my back, which has remained with me twenty years later. Oh, gosh, until I was Sorry. in a small group. Yeah, I, I'll 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 send you guys the bills later. You can yeah. you can charge yeah. it to the show. Yeah, you and a lot of other people. <laughs> yeah. We Waves definitely played trauma. our part in that rumble. That was definitely not just you. That's but, so funny. It was the craziest thing because in this group, so then I did my own, like I participated in this, uh, in this kind of therapy model and the person that was working with me said like, all right, well, what do you want to do right now? Where do you want to go? What are you feeling in your body? I said, actually, I have this lower back pain. He's like, all right, well, let's go into it. And he's like, well, what parts do you have experienced right now? And I, I don't remember the explicit part, but I had something that was going on and it gets a little sort of foofy, but only because 
we're we're allowing for our inner imagination to make sense of our experience. And this is why sometimes like dream analysis is really effective. It's not because there's like magic and it's not because of this like, you know, I don't know, some of these interpretations of things over time can be a little bit wonky, but it's really the beauty of our imagination, which is a whole nother topic. But using our imagination, we come up with images that, that make sense of what this inner experience is. I remember I had this black crow that was on my shoulder and it was this voice of like hypervigilant, super critical perfectionism. And it was like, don't do it wrong. You're going to mess it up. Like, what are you thinking? Make sure you got, you did your research, da, da, da. And that was like the voice of this crow on my shoulder constantly. And through this process with this therapy model, he's like, all right, if you, and you think that crow is causing your back. And in this moment, I could have this insight. It's almost like the crow is saying, I'm keeping you on your toes. Don't forget. And it was like, the weirdest thing. And then, and then through this process, you, you, you have these parts, you kind of make peace with the parts that are there and figure out why they're there and where they came from and how they're protecting you, whatever. And then at one point you just ask it to, to sort of take a break. And I remember just asked the, the crow to fly away for a little while and immediately back pain, completely gone like better than any Advil I ever took or any night of sleep or anything else that would have fixed it. And I was so, I was so amazed at how, like in my conception, I have assumed like it's, it must be this like spinal thing and it's muscle stuff and it's tried to go to the chiropractor and adjustments and this and that. And maybe there's a lot more involved with our psyche than we really give credit for. And so, you know, that's one example of something that's specifically affecting the body and the mind focus that's like a much easier connection to make, you know, and another way to think about this is like there could be protective mechanisms at play that it's actually better for you on some level and maybe at some point in your life, maybe not now, but maybe where that part is coming from. That was a time in your life when it would have been actually protective for you to be distracted, to to not stay focused on something or to not get ahead of yourself. I mean, there's a hundred different ways that this can look. And I've done this work with, with clients as well. It's like maybe just being successful is dangerous. And maybe there's something that needs to be reminding you or keeping you from the danger of possibly getting ahead or sticking above the rest of the crowd or having another reason to be criticized for something or so Again, number of layers here that are all sort of interrelated, but at the end of the day, we would dig into all of those things and figure out how we can make sense of your story according to this model and then what that means for where you need to go next. So That's really cool. Yeah. Let me, let me see if I can kind of get my brain around it. So when you take on a new patient or client, right, you're, you're in this personally, like you're, you're investing yourself in a way that's beyond the 45 minutes. Right, yeah. so you're you're getting involved in their lives. It's almost it, the, when you first said it, it's almost like inpatient therapy, but they're still living their lives, or they're still in their yeah. You know, you're not yeah, literally. That's cooking one way to look at it. Yeah, yeah. So so you're involved because so it's much more intensive and immersive because it's a human person you're dealing with. It always felt it always feels painful to me when you're working with someone who's in a crisis and you're like. Time. Time's up. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I get. I mean, I, I when I went to therapy, um, I took my my brother, and she had asked for me to stay in the room, and she just like, I just want to hear everything, and she spent two and a half hours with us in her office. Uh, I, I don't. I guess she had other clients, but I just remember being like, "Holy crap! I am not a number to this woman. I'm yeah. actually a person." You know. And okay, so you have that, and then you take these Thomistic Aristotelian metaphysical biology stuff of. The vegetative, right? Like, like, and you look at this. You treat the body as non-incidental. It's not just some throwaway thing. It's actually a part of your psychic, spiritual, human reality because yes. it's you. So we can't. I, I said this. I just did a theology of the body thing for for married couples. The most amount of dick jokes you'll ever hear in a theology of the body class is mine. Um, <laughs> I've made so, so many really uncomfortable. There, uh, I know, I know. I was like, "That's it. I'm done, ladies and gentlemen. Career's over." But uh, yeah, but <laughs> but uh, like the biggest thing that people have to get over is this thing. Like me is my 
conscious self. Me is my consciousness. Yeah. And my body is a thing my consciousness uses. And you can say that, but then when you really internalize, like, no, the, the soul, the spiritual soul is the substantial form of the body. So the body is not, or the soul is not inside the body. The body, if you want to speak in that language, is inside the soul. Oh, yeah. Yeah, right? I remember. Yeah, Peter Kreeft. I had Peter yes. Kreeft for freshman year uh, philosophy at Boston College. Oh, and that's awesome. He was the first person I heard say that in the most imp- lasting impression, and he yeah. made that point so clear. And I was like, yeah. that is blowing my mind. It's awesome. Yes. But it's so, it feels true. Yes. And then, yes. And then, and then you say to people, it's like, Oh, yeah, I know. I know we're union of body and spirit. It's like, okay, but does some part of you think that when you die, you shed these dirty body suits and float right. off into heaven to, like, sit on a cloud? And it's like, yeah, actually, that's kind of how I thought it was. Mm-hmm. It's not like that? <laughs> you yeah. know, like, no. Yeah. So then if my body is in my soul, the substantial form of the body, then it makes sense that at every level and he would say this all the time like when talking about sex he's like this isn't like contraception this isn't a biologism which is what this famous guy charles curran down here in in texas god rest his soul um when he opposed the church's teaching on on contraception he was like okay you want me to disprove the church's teaching contraception look i'm wearing glasses oh no it's artificial it's artificial you know and he's like this biologism has to go away and that was like a common critique and you find this in the proportionalists and other people but he was saying no 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 your spiritual nature penetrates all the way down to your your most basic animal whatever like uh in love and responsibility he says we don't call them instincts we call them urges Mm. Because our instincts are penetrated with rationality. Mm. Like, even if you can't fully articulate or understand it, they're still a part of your moral, uh, your, your rational spiritual nature. So what you're saying is, okay, so there may be manifestations in your body of these processes, uh, or not processes, the responses, the different rings of the tree to different traumas, different experiences of, of good and bad yeah. that last you know, that endure. And so your method that your approach of, of taking the body seriously and the mind seriously is to go into these in a more intensive way. Yeah, exactly. And that's what, that's what we, and even, even what John Paul II says is in, in talking about the subconscious, when you say that those things endure, he, he writes a whole like chapter of person and act about this, where it's, it's built into our subconscious over time. So these are still things that are affecting our, our, our behavior. But when we're not aware of it, we don't have the freedom right. to make decisions mm-hmm. about how we're going to act. So we don't have access to properly fully human act as long as these things are in the subconscious. And what he says is that, that it's a, he says it's a, it's a, it's an important task of morality and education to allow this facilitation of movement from data that's in the subconscious to uh, to come into the light of conscious awareness. So it's it's like that's that's what we see our vocation as in this particular role. It's like what are we doing right now in the body of Christ? It's like we're learning how to help people to become fully human by by taking out whatever their stuff is that they are holding in their subconscious. And it doesn't mean we can like make them make good decisions. That's that's the last thing we would ever want to try to do. We can't change people's decisions, but we can give them access to more of their history so they can make decisions for themselves and become fully human. Wow. That's so, awesome. That's a, that's a great elevator pitch right there, I'll tell you what. Yeah. <laughs> I, um, Good thing this is recorded. I'm going to send yeah. this to you. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I've actually done a bit of part work, and it's pretty cool. Yeah. Part work. It's, it's pretty, it's, I'm actually really glad to hear oh, you say that because – I, I I really did enjoy it, and I didn't feel bad that I liked it, and I, and I found it to to be helpful. There was there was a part of me that was just like, at some point in time, I need to unpack a bit how this can like, how does this fit with um, Catholicism? Because there seemed to be something there. Oh gosh, like, there's so much there to it. So I really what are you, what are you talking you about, Luke? That. I missed what you said. I've, I've actually done the parts work, the IFS. Work. Yeah, oh, okay. yeah, I've done IFS. So um, it's it's pretty like like because it has like. It uh, has the managers and it has like like firefighters and stuff or something and uh, yeah yeah it's it's pretty well, like, so that it's pretty and that's it. it's like it our, makes a lot of sense hearing hearing like let me say this some of those parts just become sort of our normal mode of operating mm-hmm. oh okay yep. and that's like that's the manager part and then but that doesn't always work 
Oh, so then, I have been. Okay, I know exactly what you're talking about now. Okay, I didn't know what it was called. Nice. Yeah, so that's, that's okay. what it is. And so these parts, it's called the internal family system because we approach the whole thing as if we would be doing a family therapy session with an external family, but we're using the same approach. So in other words, and this is kind of coming back to your original uh, hypothetical case presentation here, but when you're saying like, we're using these words with a lot of self-judgment and self-criticism, you know, even, even the ADD itself, you know, it, it's like, it's like, this is what keeps me, it, it, the sense that I had from you talking about it is almost like, this is like keeping you from being like a better person. Like you're not as good as you could be if you didn't have this. And, you know, are you a sinner because of these things? Cause you can't pray the rosary and doing all these things. It's like, well, if you had a family member internally that is intentionally trying to keep you distracted for a good reason in that member's perspective and probably actually did save you from some kind of pain and suffering in your past, is that level of judgment and criticism and negativity going to help anybody? And it's kind of like you have family therapy and you have the whole family is there in the room and you have like cousin Jimmy, who's an alcoholic and uncle Joe is in jail and it's like, all right, how are we going to fix this family? Well, you know what? Let's just blame Jimmy and Uncle Joe. And like, best case scenario, let's get them out of the family. <laughs> but it's like, no, I, that's not going to yeah. be our approach to good family therapy, nor should it be our approach to internal family work. So what we're looking at here is how, and again, this is my Christianization of this. And there's others, other Catholic uh, psychologists doing a lot of this good work too. So this is not totally original, but... We're, we're basically seeing here that it's another dimension of understanding practically and humanly and experientially mercy. This is God's mercy coming into who we really are. And if we look at a new way to understand, instead of a, a sort of mono-self theory or a mono-self orientation of the person, we have this, this kind of multi self persona sort of theory. In other words, we're not just one person that sometimes has a bad day where I'm not quote unquote acting myself. That bad day is also one of the parts of who you are actually. And the distracted part of you is actually a part of who you are too. And the self-criticism voice is coming from a real part of who you are. And so instead of saying like, well, we've got to, you know, reject the imposter syndrome and we've got to kick out the self-critic and we've got to, like, that's pop psychology. But if we are actually all of these sort of multidimensional experiences of self, why should only one of those parts receive God's love and compassion and mercy? And instead, we can invite God's love and mercy into every one of our parts so that if we have some part of us that's kind of uh, maybe maybe a little bit... Um, doesn't follow the rules. Maybe some part of us is kind of like the woman at the well that's like messing around and trying to do things her own way. Well, maybe she deserves Christ too. And maybe if, 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 if we mirror that mercy within ourself, we find out like, wait, this part has a good reason for being here. And, and we need to understand it. And then we got to resolve its behavior, but like not by kicking it out. Mm-hmm. Cause like, isn't there a thing where the part itself can actually be in love transformed is the right word. Yes. But like, like, yeah, like almost transformed where it's like not caught, where it's doing good as opposed to harm. Yeah. We, we, we say like, well, is there another job? Like if that part doesn't mm-hmm. have yeah. to do that same job, that's it. That's it. So in other words, let's just, again, hypothetically, let's say that you had some part that figured out that it's better to be distracted at some point in your life, maybe when you were six. And now you realize like that same situation is no longer present like that part doesn't have to do that job anymore. And instead of getting upset and kicking that part out because it makes you sin and not pray your rosary anymore, you're like, actually, no, I want to get to know you better. Where'd you come from? Why are you here? What were you doing to protect me? Oh my gosh, thank you. Like, that's amazing. I, I was getting into all this other trouble, but you saved me. And then it's like, all right, now with acceptance and love and compassion, we're at the table all together, eating, drinking, talking together. And now it's like, all right, well, we're not there anymore. That situation changed. And it's like part of the therapy is actually like informing that part that you've grown. Because a lot of times the parts in their own little crystallized world don't know everything else about your life that has changed. So you just let them know. It's like, actually, did you know, like, I, I'm, I'm like one of the 
world's most successful podcasters now. Like, I don't have to worry about top 2%. This is like, (laughs) and it's like, oh, okay. Oh, so I don't need to do that job anymore. Okay. Mm -hmm. But okay. So what else would you like to do? You know, maybe, maybe you want to spend, maybe you're like really imaginative and the things that distract you are using to Mm -hmm. distract are really creative. And maybe you want to actually start like doing strategy and planning ahead and like doing different, our vacation planning or like whatever, like each part of us, has a skill set that can be used for good or for evil. So if we, if we get it to realize it doesn't have to do the bad things anymore. Now they like, even the woman at the well, you know, it's like one of the most devoted followers of Christ. Like we have, we have this passion in her that she can use for good when she's healed of her original wounds. And now she knows that she's loved and held. And now she's, now she's one of the followers. Yeah. That's really cool. 